Dear Father, thank you, Lord, that I'm back in a position where I may teach and that my voice is uh, strong enough to support that mission, that that call you've put on my life. And thank you, Lord, for uh, those who have made time in this busy time of year to come and hear something that uh, you've prepared from the foundations of the world so that they might understand it, so that we might all come to know you better. And so, Lord, we, we ask that uh, your teacher, the Holy Spirit, would be active and, and working in our hearts so that as we hear things that perhaps for some is new and is uh, challenging, Father, I pray the Spirit would be opening our eyes and ears to hear it and see it truly in Scripture. Um, for what we may already think we know, Father, I pray we'd be open to considering um, that maybe we haven't had the whole story yet. And for those of us, Father, who are very confident in what the Bible is teaching here tonight and and have heard it before, Lord, I pray we'd be reinforced in our certainty so that we might represent it to others who have yet to see it. And we pray these, Father, in these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's dive right back in to a conversation that Jesus is having with a crowd that he fed miraculously with fishes and loaves just a day earlier. This is the day after that miracle took place. And the crowd from that earlier miracle has followed him, you may remember, from around the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum looking for Jesus because he had left that first location where he fed them. And when they found him in Capernaum, remember, he confronted them over their reasons for following him so fervently. And Jesus told them, look, you guys, you're not following me because you had come to know me as Messiah, as Lord. You are not devoted worshipers, as your actions might suggest. No, he says, instead, you are merely here because you are hungry and you hoped that I would satisfy your desire for more bread. So then at that point in the story, Jesus told them that they should redirect that goal from one of satisfying earthly concerns to seeking eternal satisfaction. Specifically, he says they need to seek the bread that comes from heaven, comes down from heaven. And as we heard last time, he was referring to himself, calling himself the bread of heaven. And when he did that, when he called himself bread, he was revealing that he was the fulfillment of a picture given in the Old Testament, of the picture created by manna falling from heaven for Israel. That was always meant to be a picture of Jesus. And he is now fulfilling that picture with his very life and his very actions by speaking to the crowd about how he himself descended as the eternal source of life, the eternal bread of life to Israel. And so Jesus told the crowd in that moment, stop working to preserve your physical life with food and instead work to save your souls. And of course, to that, they said, well, what is the work that we have to do? And Jesus replied, well, the work is simply this. Believe in him whom the father has sent. Speaking of himself again. And at that point, they demanded a sign. Remember, they said, well, show us a sign that we would believe these things. And in fact, they suggested a sign. Remember, they suggested that he do what Moses did. Give us bread from heaven every day. And in response, he said the same thing. You should be seeking something other than physical bread, something other than what satisfies your body. That's where we join back into the conversation now. And it's at this point that we reach the final part of chapter six. Jesus now beginning to teach this crowd and his disciples on a, a singular topic, a topic that will form the focus for the evening. And that topic is the origins of saving faith, the origin of saving faith. Beginning in verse 35 and 36, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Now, I'm pausing there because this sets up what's coming. We covered verse 35 last time and I repeated it tonight just as part of giving context to what we're studying. And so in verse 35, Jesus continued to make that affirmation to them, to this unbelieving crowd that I am the bread of life. You might be hungering for earthly bread because you want to nourish your bodies, but you actually suffer from another kind of hunger, a spiritual hunger, one that is far more dangerous, far more urgent than your need for food. That's the need for a spiritual source of life. And if you do not accept it, you do not embrace this, you're never going to stop being hungry in a spiritual sense. And then he actually kind of points back to that story in John four about the Samaritan woman. And he repeats, you also need to quench your spiritual thirst. So now he's combining food and drink and hunger and thirst in an analogy, in a metaphor, saying, if you only seek for what you find on earth, you're never going to find what comes from heaven. And if you never find what comes from heaven, you're never going to truly be satisfied. And you're going to go to your grave without what you really need, which is eternal life. In both cases, he says, the solution is you got to come to me. 
come to Jesus. Do you remember back in chapters 1 and 2 when we were watching Jesus collect some of the early disciples? Remember what the phrase was? Come and see. Come and see. There was always that come and then see. And that's the process of salvation. Here again, he says the road to eternal life begins with coming to Jesus. And the one who does come to him, Jesus then will reveal himself as savior. And in their recognition of him as savior, that person is born again. And of course, they follow him. Nevertheless, and this opens up now the point of tonight. Notice Jesus says these people, this particular crowd, they have, in a sense, come to Jesus. In a sense, they have followed him. They've approached him. And yet, he says, they did not believe. He continues to tell them, you must come to me. And yet, haven't they already come to him? I mean, the fact that they traveled around the Sea of Galilee, isn't that what he means when he says, come to me? Notice in verse 36, Jesus says, they have come. They have seen, in other words, and yet they do not believe. So that opens up a question that we need to answer tonight that Jesus himself will answer as we go through the text. And that question is, why haven't they acknowledged him as Messiah? What's holding them back? Jesus has certainly been as clear with them about who he is as he has been with anyone else up to this point in the gospel. And he's seen other people respond to that positively. Moreover, he's done miracles for this group that he hasn't done for anybody else. There's no record that he's done anything that approaches the kind of miracle he did with the feeding of the 5,000. Not to say nothing of the walking on the water. Why, if a crowd has heard all that he has said and seen all that they have seen him do, why do they continue to refuse to accept him for who he said he is? And if you remember at the end of last lesson, when we were here last time, I asked, how could it be that the Lord himself could present the gospel message and yet... His call to believe in himself was not effective in converting, at least in some cases, in many cases. Why would that not be effective? If the Lord's own presentation of the gospel fails to persuade a man to believe, how could anyone convert anyone? How are we more capable of converting than Christ is himself, if that's what it truly is? Is the outcome merely random? Does it rest on the capriciousness of a person's own perception or mood? Or feelings or intellect? Is that what this rests on? God has allowed the plan of salvation to rest on whether or not a given individual should happen to have the right feeling or thought in the right moment with respect to the gospel message. Is that where we're left? Does eternal salvation rest on chance? What explains the inability of these people to make sense of all that they have seen and all that Jesus has said? And by that same token, what allows anyone to come to that understanding? Well, that's the topic, and you sum that up by calling it the origins of faith. What defines, what dictates the origins of our faith? And Jesus gives us the answer to why this crowd is unable to accept him as Lord in the rest of this chapter. Look at verse 37 and onward. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but I will raise up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Over this next series of verses, Jesus is teaching on the origins of salvation which is another way of saying, why is it that some people accept him as Lord while others do not? That's the question that he's now setting up to answer. The explanation that he provides is absolutely foundational to our understanding of the gospel and actually of grace itself. The, the idea of what grace actually means is being defined in these verses. In fact, I would say there are few individual verses in the New Testament more important on the topic of salvation then verse 37, verse 37 may be one of the most important verses in the Bible when you deal with the topic of salvation. So let's look carefully at what Jesus says in this verse. First, he says the father gives people to Christ. The meaning of that statement is very specific and not at all ambiguous. Jesus says that some people are given to Christ by the father. The father selects, or the Bible would say elects, certain individuals to come to Christ. That is, to accept him as Messiah. The verb gives here in Greek 
clearly indicates that this is a process that is entirely within the father's control. The father is the one who gives. Now, he is not reacting to something. He is not responding to something else in his creation. He's not responding to the individual. He is initiating that process. He has made a determination that some certain people will be given to his son. So that's the first part of this verse. So there is a process in which the father is giving. And then notice the second verb in this opening phrase. It says that all the father gives will come to Jesus. Jesus doesn't say that those the father gives may come or might come or are invited to come or allowed to come as if they were presented with a choice as to whether or not to come. That is not what this verse says. If you've heard things to that effect and you're wondering how can this be true given what you've heard, let's not worry about what we've heard, not for the moment anyway, let's worry about what this says. Jesus is saying that all the Father gives him will come, which means that the outcome of this process is determined by the Father himself. Furthermore, he prefaces this with the word all, not some, but all. All of those the Father gives will come to Jesus. There are no exceptions. No one can be given to Christ and yet in some way fail to come to him. According to what is being written at the opening of this verse. Friends, there there is no way to parse this in any other way. There's no way to manipulate the meaning of these words so as to come to any other conclusion. They are very clear and, as I said, very unambiguous and very firm. All those the Father gives to Christ will come to know and believe in Christ. Now, based on just the first half of this verse, we have already learned two fundamental aspects of the doctrine of salvation. That doctrine of salvation is called soteriology. That's a fancy seminary word for the truth of salvation, the doctrine of salvation. And here are the two things we just learned. First, our salvation rests on a decision of the Father to bring us to Christ. It is not a decision dependent on our will or on another man's work. This is often called the doctrine of election. That is, that our salvation begins with a decision of the Father to bring us to Christ. Secondly, the Father's election of a person always leads that person to accept Christ. All who are given will come. Another way to say it is an individual who has been elected by the father to salvation cannot resist the salvation that the father has determined we are to receive in his son. This is called the doctrine of irresistible grace. That is that the grace God is extending cannot be resisted by the individual who's receiving it because God is appointing them to this end. So when the father has determined that a person will receive his mercy in Christ, then that person is inevitably caused to respond affirmatively to the grace God extends. They do so because God's grace itself changes them from within so that they then will respond to the gospel. That's why salvation is said to be a work of God in the heart. It is something God is doing to you, inside you, so that you then will respond to a message you are hearing. And friends, there is no power in the universe strong enough to stop the work of God. Not even your own will can resist what God has purposed to do. For as Paul says in Romans 9, who can resist God's will? And he doesn't even bother answering the question because it's rhetorical. We all know the answer. No one. And the Bible also teaches that the Father's choice to bring us into this process of grace that leads us into salvation is a decision that he made before we were born. More than that, he made that decision before time began. Ephesians gives us that. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, past tense, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then listen, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. 
Notice again, Paul credits the Father with the one who chooses us to be holy and blameless in Christ. And Paul says the Father made that choice before the foundations of the world. The word in Greek for foundation there can also be translated conceived. So he's saying that before the world was even conceived, you and I were chosen by the Father to be brought into his grace. We were predestined, Paul says, to be adopted as children by God. Friends, this is the definition of grace. Now, it's interesting that in the age we live and probably in the last, say, 150 years, the word grace has been subtly redefined in the culture of the church. And grace has now been defined as the offer of the gospel, that it is God's grace that he offers us the gospel. That is that he gives us a chance to be saved. And that is an erroneous way of conceiving of grace. The Bible describes grace not as that offer, but as God's willingness to save us even while we were still his enemies. That is, even before we knew well enough to accept the gospel, it was already being given to us. And then in the way he changes us, we then find it attractive. We agree to it after the fact. That's why Paul says this later in Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, he says, For by grace you have been saved. Through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Notice Paul's particular choice of words and the order of them. He says we are saved by grace through faith. He doesn't say by faith. He says by grace through faith. That is to say you are not saved by faith because faith is actually the second step in the process. You are saved by grace which then leads to all that follows as a result of God's grace. So by grace, God has delivered salvation to us. So what part does faith play in that process? Well, Paul says God granted us salvation through, or we could say by way of, our faith. Said another way, God's grace was delivered to you or manifested to you through a faith that was then given to you. Paul says very specifically, the faith we have, we received as a gift from God. He gave us a gift of faith so that we could respond affirmatively to the grace that he had already delivered to us. Because even our coming to Christ is something God himself has to produce in us by his grace. Clearly at this point, the idea that our salvation originates in the Father's choosing of us is a challenging and for many a disorienting Revelation. Almost without exception, every Christian who has ever come to understand the doctrine of election from Scripture is surprised to understand how they were saved, to see it from this perspective. They naturally are finding themselves having to rewire their thinking and their understanding of who they are and who God is and how they got to where they are. And friends, if you're coming to the Bible for study and enlightenment of God and you're never changing your mind about anything, then you're doing it wrong. The nature of the Bible is to take you from where you are and to move you to where you need to be. And it doesn't just deal with your sin. It deals with your understanding of who God is. And you should not let your surprise cause you to reject this teaching out of hand, though I know many who have done that. They they recoil at the notion that God actually has a controlling stake in the outcome of who believes in him and who does not. Friends, remember, your pride, our pride naturally recoils at the suggestion that our decision to follow Christ was not truly ours to make. Our pride hates to hear that. It is not necessarily identified in us as pride. We may not feel it as pride, but friends, that's at the core what it's about. It's about who's in control, you or God. The teaching of John 6, 37 clearly shows that salvation does not originate in our own choices or decisions. And, of course, this truth is backed up by the entire text of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. It wouldn't take very long for me to flip a page or two in any direction and find further evidence of the doctrine of election. It's all over the pages of the Bible if you know what to look for. Few doctrines of Scripture are more clearly evident throughout the pages of Scripture than the principle of God's sovereignty. But, friends, I don't know of any place where it's more clearly, more succinctly expressed than in the first ten words of verse 37. So in the first half of the verse, he teaches on the doctrines of election and irresistible grace. And then we're not even done with the verse. In the second half of the verse, he teaches on a third core doctrine of salvation. Jesus says the one who comes to Jesus, he will certainly not cast out. 
Casting out in this context means the opposite of coming to Jesus, right? He says they will come, they will not be cast out. Those are opposites by definition. So in other words, those who come to me will not be cast into judgment, into hell. That's what he's saying. Notice Jesus does not say that those who remain in him will not be cast out. Those who keep working at it will not be cast out. Those who persist in their belief will not be cast out. He puts no condition on it. He says, those who come, and come in this case means that initial entry into salvation. He's saying, once you enter in, you'll never be cast out. There's no more clear verse in Scripture when it comes to this concept. Once you come to Jesus, once you have believed in him, then that person will never again be without grace, without the faith that grace produced. As some have come to say, once saved, always saved. Once the Father wills that we would come to faith, Jesus says you will never be cast out. Eternal judgment has been eliminated forever from your future. Paul says in Romans 8, 31, he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for all of us, how will he also not freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? His point is, if it's God himself who died for you and then elected you to receive the grace that was offered through that death, who could come along after God and mess that up? Not even you. Are you more powerful than God and in Christ? See, the point is, we think of our own will as somehow having this exception to the rule of God's power and his sovereignty, as if we can trump God. And as some have said, well, he loves us so much, he gives us that overrule opportunity. Is that love? Would it be constituted love if you gave someone the chance to harm themselves against your own will for them as a parent? Do you think it's love to let your children have run around with a knife because you want to make sure their own will isn't violated by your choices and decisions on their behalf? Is that love? Where did we get this perverse notion that it makes God more loving to open doors for hell to someone than if he closes them off altogether? How is that? Somehow a greater form of love. It makes no sense. And scripture stands ready to contradict it in any case. The phrase that theologians use to summarize this third point of soteriology is eternal security. Every believer is eternally secure in the salvation that they have received from the father. There is no potential for a believer to ever, quote, lose what the father has given them freely in Christ. And if you're challenged by these three pillars of soteriology in verse 37, then consider what Jesus says next, because he's not done. Verses 38 through 39, Jesus repeats this emphasis on the Father's will. Notice this as we go down these verses, one after another. Look how often the words his will or Father's will is repeated. In verse 38, the Father's will dictated Christ's role in the plan of salvation. Jesus said that the father determined that he would have to come down and that he was being sent by the father. And so Jesus said, even I am subject to the father's will. Isaiah says this in chapter 53, four through six. He says, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell on him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But the Lord, speaking of the Father, but the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So, friends, if, if Christ himself was obedient to the Father's will in the plan of salvation, even to the point of death on a cross, then we know there is no man who can resist the Father's will if the God-man could not and would not. Then secondly, in verse 39, Christ says that the Father's will ensures that those he gives to Christ forever remain in Christ. That is to say, Christ loses nothing of what is given to him. Christ promised that all the Father has given him will be raised on the last day, which is a way of saying they'll be resurrected into a new body to live eternally just as he does. So then in verse 40, he just summarizes everything we've covered with this powerful conclusion. He says, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and be resurrected. 
But notice how he prefaces that conclusion with the phrase, this is the will of my father. And you could read verse 40 a little different way and get a better sense of what he's just said. In this sense, he says, it is by the will of my father that someone beholds the son and believes. And these I will raise up. So in other words, it starts with the will of the father to then lead someone into belief so that then they are given eternal life so that they then are raised up. It's all a continuous process of the father. Paul makes a similar statement in Romans eight about all that he foreknew. He predestined all he predestined. He elected all he elected. He justified all he justifies. He glorifies. It's an unbroken chain that began with the father and ends with our glorification. And we are simply the recipients of it. The cumulative effect of all of that work is the word grace. Unmerited favor from God. Now, for some of us, this is not new and we've learned this. And so it's just affirming what we know. For others, it may still be something we're grappling with. But as challenging as it may sound, it is just the opening salvo from Christ on this topic and in this discourse. We notice you still have quite a few verses left in this chapter. And so the topic goes on. Let's move back to the moment of what was happening as Jesus taught this. You know, if you think this is challenging now with the benefit of 2000 years of teaching and the whole canon of scripture available to us, etc. How do you think the unbelieving Jewish crowd was responding to what he said in the moment they heard these words? Well, predictably, not well. So look at verses 41 and 42. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus? The son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? In response to his statements, they grumble. Uh, You could also say they murmur, similar word. To grumble or murmur means to utter disapproving comments in an indirect way, as if obliquely, not to the person directly. And what they're grumbling or disapproving of right here specifically is they don't approve of the idea that someone so ordinary as Jesus of Nazareth, common guy, you know, local boy, should then go so far as to compare himself to God. But friends, just in the fact that that's what's bothering them, it betrays their hearts, doesn't it? It proves that they didn't know him as Lord. It bothered them that an ordinary person would call themselves God. But that's the point. He's not an ordinary person. He is God, but they don't get that. The identity of Christ is the issue for these people. And that is always the issue. It always comes back to who do you think he is? The identity of Christ is at the core of how you respond to the gospel. If you cannot accept Jesus to be the one he claims to be, that is to be God in the form of man with the power to determine our eternal destiny, then, friends, nothing else he says matters at that point. Nothing else he says, nothing else he does. He is a stumbling block. If you cannot accept his identity, it's your view of Christ that determines whether or not you are truly saved or not. Good examples come to our front door all the time in the form of Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons whose basic theology differs from Orthodox Christianity on the question of who is Jesus. The Mormons say he was a God, not the God, one of many, and that we can likewise become one if we do what they tell us. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses say he was not a God at all. He was simply a prophet for how could God ever die? And that's their theology. You see, it always comes down to that. Who is he? Those who truly recognize Jesus as Lord are saved. Those who don't are not. At this point, Jesus has explained to the crowd and to us how someone comes to believe in him. But there is still this question that we have yet to answer, I guess, and at least fully, and that is, If this is so, then what do we conclude about this crowd in the fact that they have seen and heard so much and yet they haven't believed in him? What conclusion must we draw concerning them personally? We get that answer in the next part of Jesus' teaching. Look at verses 43 through 51. Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. 
This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. And I think in verse 50, he's pointing to himself as he says that this is the bread which comes down out of heaven. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also, which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. So he rebukes them for their disapproving words. And in his rebuke, Jesus teaches what is actually a corollary to the earlier statements, a corollary truth to those three earlier principles of soteriology. And the corollary is this. Just as everyone the Father gives will come to Jesus, so also those who are not given by the Father will never come to Jesus. As Jesus says, no one can come to belief in Jesus unless the Father would draw that person. Now, the way he spoke those words, the way Jesus spoke those words in the Greek language, which is what was spoken, is much more dramatic, or at least that's how it's recorded. He may have been speaking Aramaic, but it was recorded in Greek. But the word in Greek that's used here is much more dramatic than the one that we have in our English version. And consequently, it's a lot more revealing. The word for draw, we have draw here. The word in Greek is helko, which literally means drag, not draw. And you can see that in some other uses of that word in other places of the New Testament. For example, in John's Gospel, chapter 21, verse 6, later in this Gospel, there's that moment in which Jesus appears to Peter on the Sea of Galilee after the crucifixion, and Peter's fishing again, remember? And in verse 6, he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find a catch. This is after they had found nothing all, all night of fishing, remember? And so they cast, it says, and they were not able to haul the net in because of the great number of fish. The word haul, helco. Acts 21, verse 30, another context, but the same Greek word. Then all the city was provoked and the people rushed together and they took hold of Paul and they dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. Same Greek word, helco. So I'm not sure why the New American Standard Bible translators chose to soften Jesus' language in John 6 by calling it draw. I mean, draw makes it sound like it's an invitation again, doesn't it? The Father drawing us. Would you like to come know Jesus? Would you please come? That's not what the word means. The word literally means no one can come to Jesus unless the Father drags us to Christ. The word drag, I think, is an accurate reflection of the fact that we are opposed to the gospel and to Christ, to God himself, by our very natures until God overcomes that by his grace. Paul on the road, Paul had to be arrested as he was going to arrest Christians. You have to be dragged into the light of Christ. John himself said in chapter one that Christ came into the world as the light of the world, but men prefer the darkness. You have to be dragged kicking and screaming into the gospel. But once you're there, you're like, oh, yeah, I should have come here all alone. This is great. And then without proper biblical instruction, we begin to teach ourselves that we wanted to be there. I heard the gospel and of course it made perfect sense. That's how it is. It has to be irresistible because if it was possible to resist, we would do it every single time by our nature. The human nature of a fallen, sinful person is to not want to be into the light because what did John say? It exposes our evil deeds. Only the Father's will is powerful enough to bring us to the gospel. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. That he applies his grace in that way. Does this not magnify the grace of God in your understanding when you realize how much he had to do to bring us there? That if it weren't for him, no one would be there? This whole process depended on the Father's will, because without it, we would never have gone there on our own. Our own will would never have made that choice. Our sinful nature is set against him. So unless he elects us and until he drags us into faith, we're never going to get there of our own accord. But in our perception of it, in our experiencing of it, it doesn't necessarily play out that way because of what's actually required to bring us to faith. God has to overcome our objection. He has to move our will to the point when we do find it appealing. So in our experiencing of it, we remember the appealing part. We don't remember the 25 years you lived as an unbeliever before you accepted the gospel. You don't remember the 15,000 times you heard the gospel presented and you rejected it. You just remember the one time you accepted it. It's the nature of the business of what God is doing that leaves us with that perception. Paul and John also teach this truth in various other places of the New Testament, just to canvas a few, because this is so foundational. I certainly don't want you to think I'm making mountains out of molehills in John 6. For example, in Romans 8, 6, Paul says, 
The mind set on the flesh is death, and the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And this phrase, in the flesh, in that context, is a euphemism for being unregenerated, being an unbeliever. He says, it is not even possible for us to subject ourselves to the law of God, that is, to the, to the word of God. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, Paul says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Remember earlier Jesus said that no one has actually seen the Father, only the one who has come from the Father. That's a way of indicating that when he says you must be taught by God, you're taught not by the Father per se, you're taught through the Spirit of God. Here Paul echoes that. We'll come back to that thought in a minute. 1 Corinthians 2, 14, Paul says, A natural man, which is a way of saying an unbeliever, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are to be spiritually appraised. In other words, you cannot understand the gospel, because it's a spiritual truth, until you have the Spirit of God in you, teaching you of its truth. So it's a catch-22. I can't understand the gospel unless the spirit in me lets me understand the gospel. But I'm taught I don't have the spirit of God until I understand the gospel. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the spirit comes to us so that we can say Jesus is Lord. So the actual process is father elects, spirit comes, we are regenerated, and then we say Jesus is Lord. And so that's why we say our confession of faith is coincident with the indwelling of Christ. But never get those two backwards. It starts with the spirit. Then it leads to the confession, not the other way around. That's the Bible's testimony. And then John himself in his letter, first John says this for one beloved. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know, the spirit of God, everyone who confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Listen to that. Every spirit, whether demonic spirit or human spirit, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Conversely, those that are willing to confess Jesus as Christ are those who have a spirit from God. Once again, the point is God has to give you that ability to say yes. So the identity of Christ has become the stumbling block for these people. And Jesus says the fact that you're murmuring, the fact that you are objecting to me and my identity is evidence that the Father has rejected you already or simply not called you, we might say. Notice in verse 45, Jesus says, Even the Old Testament prophets said that God's people, those who know him and love him, we could say believers, would be those who are taught by him. And he quotes Isaiah 54 again. God has always worked this way to bring men to himself in faith. Everyone who has learned that Jesus is Lord has been taught that by the Father. So once again, when God is at work as an evangelist, he has a 100% success rate. And when he is not at work evangelizing our hearts through the Spirit, 100% of that audience fails to come to Christ. It's an all or nothing proposition. So as I asked last time, how could Jesus present the gospel to this crowd and not find success in converting them? The answer is the father had not yet taught them the identity of Christ. He was not in the process, at least in this moment, of dragging them into the light. And as they remain in the darkness, Jesus's words bounce right off them. Just like when you talk to your teenager, there was absolutely no response to what he said. And so naturally they prefer the darkness. Now, if the father had taught them who Christ was, as Isaiah says he will do for those he calls, then we can expect that 100% of them would have received Christ. But because he's not taught them, exactly 0% are receiving him in this moment. It's a black or white process. Those who receive God's grace are saved. Those who do not are not, right? Now, as a side note here, when the word of God says that God's children are taught by God, back to what I said a moment ago, it's really a reference to the spirit working to do that, as we said earlier. We are taught by the spirit both into our salvation and then subsequent to our salvation through the word of God principally. Once again, Jesus ends by returning to his identity and saying, I am the bread of life. You need to believe in me. It's a broken record because there's no better answer. 
He does say one new thing, though. He says, you know, the ancestors that you think so highly of, who had that great manna that you wish you could have, think about it, they ate it every day and they still died. I mean, what did it really accomplish in the end? What was the real benefit? We use similar language or similar thinking today when we talk to people who, as Christians, perhaps work a little too hard to preserve their earthly life. And you want to say to them, I get the desire to be as strong and healthy as you can be for what time you've been given. That's sensible. But beyond that, what's the point in preserving something you want to get rid of anyway? And you know what better things do when you do get rid of this one. Why preserve the old one longer than necessary, right? There's a certain lack of logic to it if you hold to an understanding of what's coming in eternal life. Jesus says to them, if you really think bread is all that it is, why do you want it so badly if it just leads to death in the end? Isn't that saying there's got to be a better solution? Isn't that enough to lead you to think of other things? And yes, it is. There's a great comparison that you can find in Scripture between manna and Jesus in this context of Jesus being the fulfillment. Manna came at night. Jesus came into darkness. Manna came from heaven. And Jesus descended from heaven and became flesh. Manna was sweet. And Psalms 34, 8, it says Jesus is sweet in the sense of our satisfaction. Just as Israel in the desert took the manna into their bodies, they consumed it, in other words, so do we have to take Jesus in, spiritually speaking. Just as the manna would have to be completely consumed up by the people each day, so likewise Jesus had to be completely consumed in his work of saving us by giving up everything on the cross, right? Nothing was left of himself. There is one difference. The Jews in the desert had to eat manna every day in order to sustain their physical bodies, but a man must only take in Jesus once to be saved for eternity. So Jesus says it will be his flesh that must be consumed like bread for the life of the world. Now, we understand what he meant when he said that, right? Everybody understands that Jesus was referring to his sacrificial death on the cross for the sins of the world. That is, in that sense, his flesh was like bread. It was given to the world. It was consumed so that he could do the work that the father had given him and that you must take it in. You must eat it in the sense of how you must accept Christ spiritually and take him in. We, we can see that. But what do you imagine this unbelieving crowd was thinking when they heard these words? Well, we don't have to imagine because you can see the response in the very next section. Look at verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. Well, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now, they have a very predictable response to these words. They are disgusted at the prospect of cannibalism, which, of course, is what they're assuming he's talking about. So naturally, they ask each other, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Notice John says they were arguing with one another. They're not arguing with Jesus over this point. They launch into a little argument with each other over this. And the Greek word here means an intense argument erupted within the crowd. So it seems as though some people were trying to make sense of his words. And then there were those on the other side that had heard enough. They had had all they were going to take and they were ready to walk away. And so the argument is sort of over. Could he really have meant that? Oh, come on. He couldn't have meant that. He didn't mean well. He said that. I mean, what are we supposed to mean? So there was this back and forth for a minute. And Jesus does not have any interest in making this any easier for them. So he repeats himself. He says, you've got to eat my flesh. And then he doubles down and he says, also, you've got to drink my blood. And he adds this reference to blood, I think, in response to their thinking that he was advocating cannibalism. Because we know that's not what he's advocating, but it's because of their inability to see him with spiritual eyes that has led them into that conclusion. And so then he picks up on this idea of cannibalism and he pushes it even further, I think, just to mock their ignorance. Right. To illustrate the fact that you're not getting it. And when he says eating his body, drinking his blood, he's really saying two things at once. First, he's using a figure of speech here. If you're an English major, you probably knew this, but it's a synecdoche is the term. A synecdoche is a figure of speech in which you take the part of something and use it to represent the whole of something. So like in a sports analogy, if I was to say San Antonio beat Cleveland, what we mean is the San Antonio Spurs beat the Cleveland Cavaliers. We don't mean that the city of San Antonio beat up on the city of Cleveland. Get it? 
That's a synecdoche. We're saying that the whole and the part can be used interchangeably in a comparison. So in this case, we're saying that the blood and the flesh of Christ are the parts of him that are standing in representation for the whole of him. So you either take him and all that he is or you take none of him. You can't have your preferred vision of Christ. You can't redefine him in a comfortable way and then just have that for what you want. It's all or it's none. You don't want my flesh. Well, guess what? You need my blood also. You need everything. Take me in. Now he's speaking in metaphor, of course, as a figure of speech. But his emphasis is on the whole of himself, on all that he is. If you do not accept everything about me that I claim, everything I claim to be and do, and everything I offer, then you have not claimed me at all. You have no eternal life. Then secondly, the second thing I think he's saying is he's alluding to the Last Supper and to the command where believers are told to participate in a communion meal, a memorial meal of his death and sacrifice on the cross. Now, at the time he said these words, obviously that sacrament had not yet been established, But it's an allusion to that coming ritual and to the importance of it, that our salvation, in other words, depends on a consumption of Christ, that is to believe in him. And that belief, that consuming belief, is then pictured by our willingness to take in the elements of the communion meal. Now, let's not be at all confused about what the Bible is saying. We are not saying, and the Bible is not saying, that these elements are truly his body and blood, nor are we saying that we must eat them to be saved. What he's saying is they are representative of what it means to be saved. And that thing they represent is the taking in of Christ in terms of believing in him, of accepting him in the new covenant. And having accepted him, now I memorialize or I demonstrate that acceptance through this ritual. That's what he's alluding to, I believe. So our belief is pictured by that meal with the symbols of his body and blood in that meal. And then in verses 56 and 57, he returns to the principles of eternal security and the Father's sovereignty in the salvation process. Jesus says those who consume Christ will abide in him and he will abide in them. The word abide in Greek, men know. It has a a large range of meanings in Scripture. It can mean to continue or to endure or to remain. So, in other words, the person who takes in Christ, who believes in him, will remain in him and our salvation is eternally secure. And then lastly, our belief will ultimately lead to Our resurrection again. Jesus sums up this point on bread by repeating, look, I am the kind of bread far superior to the kind your fathers ate in the desert. The type that leads them, the the type they ate led them to death, whereas the type I'm giving you leads you to eternal life. Now, we've heard this multiple times to this point, right? The gospel message is not a varied message. It doesn't have nuance. It doesn't come at you from 50 angles. It's always the same message. Jesus is who he said he was. Believe in him and be saved. Or don't. And he hasn't modified the message. I really like John 6 for many reasons, but one of them is as a model for evangelism. When the first answer you get isn't the right one, you don't change the message to get a better one. It's the same message. And yes, some will reject it to their grave. It's simply evidence that they weren't called by the father. They weren't dragged into the light. You can't fix that by changing the message. You don't have a better one. So staying with the same message is the best chance you have to see the result you're hoping for. And if it doesn't happen on the first go around, maybe it'll happen on the hundredth go around like it did for many of us. But it won't happen at all if you change the message from the one that saves. That's the bottom line. He doesn't change the message. He doesn't look for a better option than the one he's already given them. It's me. I'm eternal life. Come to me. It's the same message. His point is. Stop worrying about how you keep your body alive. Start concerning yourself with how you keep your soul alive. And that's me. Elsewhere, Jesus says in Luke 12, 4 and 5, he says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body. And after that, I have no more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed you, has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Speaking of himself. So Jesus has addressed the question of the crowd's unbelief and he's explained that they haven't been led to him by the father yet. That's why they're standing there in unbelief. Last thing you handle in this chapter is, well, now, what are the disciples making of all of this? Because they've been in the audience, too. So where do they fall? Look at verse 59. Then are these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to this? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. 
The flesh profits nothing. And the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the father. Well, we now learn in verse 59 that the crowd had caught up with Jesus in Capernaum while he was teaching on a given Sabbath day in the synagogue, it appears. And naturally, if he was in the synagogue teaching, his disciples would have been there with him on that day. And so they've been in the crowd of the synagogue listening, along with all the others, to everything that we've heard said so far, including to that phrase, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. And so in verse 60, we're told that many of his disciples were joining in the murmuring with the crowd over what they had heard. And they're saying to themselves, this is a difficult statement. And that word in Greek for difficult, it literally is the word for offensive. So what they're saying is, uh, this is an offensive thing. This is a hard, actually the word is literally the word hard, but euphemistically it's meant to mean offensive. It's hard to hear. It hurts. I don't like that. It's offensive. The reaction tells us that, that in this context, the word disciple isn't synonymous with the word believer in this context. This is clear now. A disciple, friends, is just the word for pupil or student. And in this situation, we see that it was simply given to name the fact that they were following him, at least for a time. But not all who were following him were believers, it is apparent. Not all were true disciples. They merely were following him for some other reason, at least temporarily. And it only took some hard statement like this to separate the wheat from the chaff, didn't it? And all of a sudden now we can see who's who because the ones who don't like this are saying, I don't think we can see here anymore this. You know, I think I've had enough. And that's the same pattern that's always been. It's the same pattern today in the church. Because today, friends, there are false disciples everywhere. Uh, some of them were us for a time anyway. I know I sat in churches for many years without knowing the Lord. So I was a false disciple. I just didn't know it. And we come to know who's who Uh, When we see them ultimately rejecting the clear teachings of Christ in the Bible, when those moments happen one to another, when somebody finally comes face to face with the gospel in its true form or some aspect of it, and they back off or they can't live within the, the constraints of it, they're starting to give you cause to think of them maybe differently than who they claim to be. And if they reject Jesus as God and they reject his teachings on sin and hell and judgment, well, and salvation by faith alone, well, then they are showing themselves to be false disciples in those rejections because they're rejecting the very truths that define salvation, that define eternal salvation, right? The knowledge of who he is and what he does for us. And so some of his groupies, for lack of a better term, have now shown themselves to not be truly believers. And so in verse 61, Jesus asked them, what's causing you to stumble? Did my words, is it my words that are causing you to stumble? Now notice this is a bit sarcastic. He's saying, is it what I said? That's causing you to stumble. It's a rhetorical. It sets up his statements in verse 62. He says that if they are unable to accept it, then how would they ever be able to accept seeing him resurrected from the grave, which he will do in a day to come? And then after that, ascending to the right hand of the father. They're back to the question of identity again. If these words are enough to cause you to stop following me, what are you going to think when you see these miraculous things come in the near future? If you can't accept my word on one thing, you're not going to accept me at all is his point. It's not my words that are causing you to stumble. It's not because you don't like to hear about flesh and blood that you've become offended. Oh, yeah, that's the topic that brought it to the surface. That's not the cause. That's just the result. That's the symptom of the bigger problem. Once again, what is the problem that has led them to grumble? He repeats his statement again in verse 65. He says, it's because of what I've already said. Your problem is the same as this crowd. And before that, in verse 63, he says, the one who gives man eternal life is the spirit, referring to how he regenerates. In other words, being born again is literally a process done by the spirit inside of us. It's how we come to believe and to be saved and to receive eternal life. And Jesus calls them out and says, you are unbelievers. Verse 64, he says, some of these people have not believed. Now, some, because we know there are true disciples among those who followed him, but some had not. And then he adds, John adds that Jesus knew from the beginning who these unbelievers were. Now, what do you think John means when he says from the beginning? Does he mean like from the beginning of that day or from the beginning of the synagogue meeting or from the beginning of the events of the prior day? No, he means from the beginning of the foundations of the earth. He means what Paul said in Ephesians chapter one. He means that from the very beginning, as Jesus recruited these men, like he did all the disciples, he was recruiting some that he knew did not believe in him. And for that matter, would not 
believe in him, that were not given to him by the father so that they would come to Christ. And in fact, John adds, just to make sure we're not in any doubt about this, that we're not misunderstanding his words. He says, Jesus even selected a disciple that he knew beforehand would be the one to one day betray him. God wasn't willing to leave to chance any aspect of the plan of salvation, even to include the fact that there needed to be a betrayer assigned to the role. He wasn't waiting for each person to make up their minds concerning his identity. He wasn't preaching every day to this crowd, hoping to convert yet more of his disciples to believing in him. He didn't have some unrealistic expectation that if he just changed the message or softened it up or became more appealing, he could capture more of that audience, right? He knew who the Father had selected for him before he even left heaven and came to earth. So that as Jesus walked around Galilee and he ministered to crowds, he could see a person and he knew his sheep from the goats. He knew who was his and who was not. And he knew that Nathaniel was his. And that's why he could tell Nathaniel that he saw him even before he approached him. He knew exactly who he was going for and why. And he also knew the woman at the well was to be the person that was going to be his sheep. So he stopped and talked to her when he could have otherwise just walked on by. He knew who were his. But likewise, he knew who were not given to him by the father who would never come to believe in him. This crowd. And now we find out even some of his disciples were people such as these men and women who could not accept the things Jesus said because they were not among those that were dragged by the Father into the light. Notice in verse 65, Jesus again repeats that central tenet, as I said. No one can come to believe in Jesus unless it has been granted by the Father. So, in other words, if someone rejects Christ, it is simply evidence that that person has not been given. At least not on that day. At least not so far. For we can't look into the future and necessarily know the final result We can only know what we see in that day. So we see the truth of his words in the effect it has on the crowd. And again, now on the disciples, let's look at what they do. Verse 66 to the end. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. I love this scene. I've quoted this many times in my teaching. I find it to be useful in so many situations, both from the standpoint of the doctrine here, but also from the standpoint of Peter's perspective. I think Peter serves as a useful stand-in for pretty much everyone who's ever come to faith. As a result of Jesus' teachings, we're told here that the disciples who were grumbling are now saying, you know what, not so much for me anymore, I'm gone, uh, I'm out of this party, goodbye. And they stopped following him, they literally just stopped being his disciple. That's it, heard enough. They're exposed, in other words, for who they truly are, unbelievers. As Peter teaches in Second Peter, they are dogs who return to their vomit. In other words, what that means, of course, is they act differently than their true nature for a time, but they can't do it forever. Eventually, the act grows old and it gets too hard to follow Jesus, given who they truly are and given all that he's saying. So they return to their vomit. They return to who they really are. And eventually they just call it a day. I'm not following anymore. Those of us who've known people who claim to be Christian and then it appears fall away. Well, based on what Jesus has said in this chapter, both at the beginning and now here, it's clear that there are two explanations for what could be happening when you see someone who appeared to be a Christian and then appears to fall away. Either they are the dog who was never the Christian and they return to their vomit, so to speak. They simply get to the point where being a Christian is too much work and not worth it. And they don't have any true heart for Christ, so there's nothing holding them. Or they are a believer who has been dragged into the light. And as God dragged them, they did come. And as they did come, they did receive. And as all that God gives Christ will stay with him, they have stayed with him. But friends, in our flesh, we have the potential to be incredibly disobedient to our faith to act against our new nature in living out a life against Christ. For the people who are doing that or have done that, I have a sense of confidence to a degree that just as a dog returns to its vomit in the case of the unbeliever, there is a draw continually in their heart through the spirit to bring that, quote, dog back to its origins, that is, back to Christ. And we've seen many people who made that wandering detour but did come back. My wife's a good example of that, actually. And because of that, I was able to come to faith under her influence in our marriage. 
So it is certainly possible and often does happen. But there are no guarantees. You know, the warnings of Hebrews and of many other places in the New Testament make it abundantly clear that if having tasted the heavenly gift and having known the spirit and so on, we continue in unbelief, we may not be brought again to repentance, that it is the case that we could be left to follow our sin to the end and then suffer the loss of reward in heaven as a result. But we will be eternally secure in our salvation. Didn't come by works, can't lose it by works. Wasn't by your will, can't be lost by your will. You didn't get it because you earned it, you can't lose it because you disearned it. Is that even a word? No. Because you forfeit it. It's not an option. It doesn't work on that on that relationship. It's not part of that kind of a system. Thank the Lord. How many of us would be secure if it depended on our willingness to hold to Christ, right? So, when it came down to the 12 disciples that Jesus handpicked, the question is, how are they going to react to all of this? Are we in danger of losing some of the 12? And Jesus even offers the door for them to walk out, doesn't he? He says, are you going to leave too? Suggesting they might have the option. The point of his question is to expose their hearts as believing, just as his earlier words exposed the rest of the disciples' hearts as unbelieving. In response to his challenge, this is the fun part, ever ready Peter, he steps up and he declares, where else would we go anyway? Since you have the words of eternal life, this is the only place we'd ever want to be. Now, if Peter had left it there, he might have done okay. It might have worked out pretty well for him in the end because that's okay. But he has to push, right? He goes to the next step and he says, we have believed and come to know you are the Messiah. Now, that's the statement that uh, gets him into big trouble. That's the one where he goes off the rails. He asserts that these 12 men were still here, not because they had been dragged into the light and brought to the sun and he's keeping all that he's given, not because of any of that. No, no, just because they worked it out. They figured it all out. They kind of walked it through in their heads. They came up with the answer. They looked at it. They evaluated. They made the analysis and they came to the conclusion, you're the right guy. We're going to stick around. That could not be further from the truth, given all that Jesus just taught in John chapter six. They didn't come to faith in Jesus any differently Then anyone else comes to faith in Jesus. And Jesus says that in verse 70. He says, let's review the process for a minute. Wasn't I the one who chose you guys? I mean, did you actually go looking for me? Before you even knew who I was, before you saw my miracles, before we had any exposure to this Messiah thing, when I just saw you sitting under a tree, hadn't that already been worked out? You were going to come to me? That this was all a part of the plan? Yes, of course. He's pointing out that each one of the twelve were brought to Jesus And even furthermore, selected as apostles based exclusively on Jesus's choice. These men did not come to know Jesus as Lord. They were made to know Jesus as Lord. And they aren't staying because they simply resolved to stick around and they're a little better kind of guy than the other ones who walked away. They are staying because Jesus will not lose any that the father has given him. And by lose here, he doesn't mean literally stick around physically. He means in eternal terms. But still, in this context, that's the point Jesus is making. Your interest in sticking around is not of your own making. It's supernatural. And just to prove the point, Jesus then adds, look, one of you guys is a devil. And John explains in verse 71 that he's referring to Judas, the guy that we know betrays Christ in the end. Of course, the rest of the disciples at this point don't have a clue what he means. And there's no comment after that. But we know that when they heard these words, they would have gone right over their head. They would have not had a clue what he just said. John remembered it, though, clearly, because he's thinking about it now and he's writing it down. God's sovereignty is so certain and his plan is so intricately worked out in advance that even by God's grace, there was a man selected to be betrayer. And when I say by grace, I don't mean that he was saved, but that he was given even for the moment grace to be a part of what God was doing in Christ on earth. The father knew that there would be no chance of a true disciple, someone who's truly saved to ever desire to betray their master. If he had picked 12 believers, there'd have been no betrayer, no one would have stepped up to betray the Lord that they believed in. So, if the plan of the Father is for Christ to be killed by Romans on a cross, then there must be at least one person in a position to be willing to betray him. That means at least one person had to be an unbeliever in the midst. And so, Christ needing to be handed over by someone to his enemies at the right time, there had to be someone nearby him who could do that. They had to pick the guy. So when Peter says to him, hey, we chose you, Jesus, the Lord rebukes Peter by saying, no, I chose you. And so it is for everyone who believes in Jesus. You might be tempted to think you chose Christ. The word of God declares that he chose you. As we come to the end of this chapter, and as some of you perhaps are 
very comfortable with this teaching because you've heard it many times, you've come to understand it from Scripture, then you perhaps are in a better position to explain it to others. For any who might be new to this thought, or at least new enough that this is, this is something I've got to go home and think about. Good. Think about it. Think a lot about it. And there is a lot more you could learn about it in Scripture. We've only looked at one part of one chapter, right? But I will tell you this. This is where I'll end. To those Christians who have come through this process, understanding election and salvation, understanding God's sovereignty, knowing he chose us, we didn't choose him, and seeing that as Scripture provides for it. It is not just important. It is life-changing as a Christian. It is the kind of revelation that fundamentally resets your understanding of who God is and who you are. And with it comes this ability to see Scripture all new again and in its proper way. I mean, verses that you've never looked at the right way before will suddenly open up. Whole books of Scripture will mean something differently. The notion of God choosing Abraham and a nation of people out of him suddenly takes on such different meaning than it does when you have underestimated the sovereignty of God. So don't give up on the truth of this because it's shocking. Turn that shock you know, jiu-jitsu, turn that shock back into a power for your own study. I don't believe I just used that reference in my teaching, but <laughs> first time for everything. And I have seen some who reject this out of hand because it seems too different from what they've heard before. Or Pastor so-and-so never taught this, can't be true. A lot of well-meaning people don't understand this. But God has the power through his word to bring us all in alignment with it if we will listen carefully. So with that, I'll close. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the grace that you have made available to us, that by your power we have been dragged into the light of Christ, Father. Who were we that you would do that for us? How is it, Father, that among all the men and women of this earth who have ever lived, you might count us one of your children? There's no answer to that question, Father. That's the power of grace. That's the awesomeness of grace, that once we truly understand it, we don't understand it. While we were so certain of how we arrived when we thought it was up to us. And now, Father, we're so mad, mystified by why you would do what you did. And in that, Father, you receive the proper glory you deserve. And I thank you, Lord, for that revelation. Let us uh, give sober thought to it. Let us consider it without rejecting it out of hand. And, Father, well, as we do learn it, I pray you'd use it to make us better disciples. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.